Morning, Lakes. It's good to see all of you again. It's been a little too long. It uh, warms my heart to be able to be up here again. I want to use this as an opportunity also just to thank Lakes Free for the generous sabbatical um, thing, um, offer that they give to their pastors. It's such an amazing opportunity to be able to be away and to focus on something and to spend time with your family focused um, just being able to rest together. I know it was an incredibly productive time for me, both for doing doctoral work, which I'm still in the midst of, I was able to, to make some significant gains in that, and um, good time for my family as well, as we were able to spend time just resting and enjoying one another. It is always a good thing. So I thank you again for that opportunity. Which, actually, I'll be able to, uh, to bring that up a little bit um, as, we, as we engage in our passage this morning. I, uh, I love sledding. I realize that's a bit of an odd thing to, uh, to throw out there, but trust me, it does, it does actually connect. It's not uncommon when we're on road trips or when we're traveling to new places and I see a big hill on the side of the road, I'm like, oh, it's a sled hill. That would be phenomenal. Can you guys imagine sledding down that beast? Like, there's a problem. I mean, there's the fence at the end of the hill, but who cares? Like, we can get around the fence. I, I, I love sledding. It's an exciting thing for me. I still love taking my kids out sledding. There are many things as a father that year after year I do get tired of. But sledding is not one of them. I really enjoy it. Um, it is. It's a lot of fun. But I'm not, I'm not from the north, all right? I'm not from the north. I'm from a place where we don't have snow. So, uh, so, so sledding isn't something I've been able to do for the entirety of my life. And especially, you know, when, when your children are really young and, and you, like, take them sledding for the first time, like, they're small and they can't make it up the hill, so you just pick them up by the scruff of the neck, and you carry them up the hill, right? Um, and then they get a little bit older, and you get a little older, and you're a little more feeble and incompetent, and all of a sudden, I can't make it up the hill as well as I used to, and they need to start actually carrying their own weight up the hill. Now, again, you guys are northerners. You're Minnesotans. You probably learned to walk on the snow before you learned to walk on dry ground, but for those of us from the south, it's kind of like, how do you teach your kid to get up this massive hill now without me carrying them. You know, I kind of turn and watch my kids trying, and they keep falling smack down in the snow, which is funny, but, but at some point in time, they do need to be able to make it up the hill. So kind of stopping and observing, um, we, uh, I, I taught my kids to sled in Wisconsin, um, in Wisconsin, and so I began watching the other fathers, the other fathers and mothers taking their kids up the hill, and I noticed something. I don't know if they had taught their kids or if it was just natural because they're just, again, from the north. But these kids are going up in their parents' footsteps to get up the mountain. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. Really, again, from, to a southerner, that's a brilliant thing. So, so, so teaching my kids the way to get up this hill is to follow in my footsteps. Follow in my footsteps. Look where I step, step where I step, and you can make it up this hill. Um, th th this became a little bit even more real to me um, dur during, during the past month. Um, my wife and I, we were able to spend a little bit of time in Greece. And one of the things that we did while we were there is we hiked Mount Olympus, the, the highest peak on Mount Olympus, which was a, a bigger expedition than I had expected. Um, and, and yes, there is actually snow in Greece. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing. As an American, I was shocked. I'm like, wait, I thought this was all islands. But there are mountains and there are snow. Um, and so, and so we're, we're going across this particularly treacherous part um, towards, the top of, uh, towards the top of the mountain, Mount Olympus. 
and it's a fairly narrow trail, and then you just have a drop-off, just a sheer cliff, hundreds of feet to, to, to the side. And we get to this point in the trail where there's actually snow covering over the trail. It's just this field of snow that we have to trek across. And it's one of those points where you're like, wow, if that snow gives way, like you can't see the trail anymore. It's a narrow trail. You know it's under there, but it's narrow. But if that snow gives way, you're gone. Um, and, so, and so one of us, one after another, are making steps in the snow, trying to make it across a, I don't know, a 15-foot field of snow. And just absolutely terrifying. So again, one foot in front of the other, following the path that has been laid out before us. This morning, I want to talk about paths. I want to talk about paths. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Psalms, which at this point in time, many of you are probably quite familiar with what the Psalms are. The Psalms are, are songs or prayers to God that have been recorded and given, and given to us. They don't look like the typical songs that we're used to, where you have all the rhyming and such. They use different, um, different uh, they have a different style of poetry in the ancient Near East. But these are actually poems, songs, and prayers that have been handed down to us. And this morning, we're going to talk specifically about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is one of the most famous psalms. And I just, I just have to confess, I don't know that we should have favorite passages of Scripture, per se, because all of Scripture is God-breathed, but Psalm 1 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, it is such a rich passage that I'm excited to be able to share with you today. Psalm 1 in particular is an example of what we call a wisdom psalm. It's a wisdom psalm, meaning it's a psalm that's meant to guide God's people. Wisdom psalms teach us the path that we're supposed to follow in. And oftentimes, the wisdom psalm, you'll see it laid out in two paths. There's the path of wisdom, the path of the righteous, the path that we should follow, and then there's the path of foolishness, the path of wickedness, the path that we should avoid. So we have these two paths that we can choose between. And honestly, I can't imagine something that would be more important for us this morning, especially in contemporary America, where we are so hard-pressed and where we see culturally that we've lost so many of our biblical moorings, and we're living in a culture that is going astray. We're presented all the time with these new questions, these new issues that we have to navigate. But God's word and God's wisdom doesn't change. And it is just as applicable now in our current day culture as it was the thousands of years ago when it was written. It's a trustworthy map for us to follow. And our culture, our culture desperately tries to create its own path, but there is a better path in God's word. And that's what I wanna explore this morning. This morning we'll look specifically at what it means to enjoy the blessed life to enjoy the blessed life. Briefly, we'll, we'll kind of look at it in three chunks. We'll look at what, what the way of the blessed life is. We'll look at the results of the blessed life. And then finally, we'll look at the end of the blessed life. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up again. Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through the entirety of the psalm. If you're having a hard time finding it in your Bibles, it's right before Psalm 2. <laughs> Sorry, that was snarky. Um... <laughs> Psalm 1, and we will uh, we'll read it, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time that we are able to spend, Lord, hearing your word, thinking about your word, drinking in your word. God, I pray that you would use it to powerfully change our hearts, to our minds, to transform us more to the image of your beautiful and glorious son. Father, please let this be a time of worship and adoration of all who you are and all that you have done. Father, please guide my words as I speak during this time so that my words would be eclipsed by the power of your word. God, draw near to us. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So as we, as we delve into our passage this morning, we're beginning by looking at the way of the blessed life. Again, verse 1 Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Now, two things that probably need to be pointed out about this. First, when it talks about man here, it is not excluding women. Uh, man here was a very typical ancient Near Eastern generic address to both men and women. It's not uncommon during family devotions, and I'm reading this to my girls and my wife, the, 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 that I actually include. Blessed is the man and woman. Um, because that's essentially what it means. So, blessed is the man. Second thing to point out, blessed, that's a term that gets used in a broad variety of ways in our culture today. It can mean all kinds of things. It can mean simply just that I'm feeling good. I'm feeling quite blessed today. Thank you very much. Um, it, It could mean something along the lines of, Good things happened to me, things that I liked, things that made me feel good. It could be used that way. Or it could be just used because someone just sneezed, maybe. God bless you, right? We, we use blessed in all variety of ways, so sometimes I find it almost an unhelpful word. But one of the interesting things about this word in particular is this isn't actually the typical Hebrew word for blessed. It does regularly get used, but it's not the most typical word. It has a bit of a distinct nuance, which some of your translations, depending on what you're reading along with this morning, might actually have the word happy here. And it's not too far from that either, though happy also culturally is a bit of a slippery word for us. The, uh, the Hebrew word is actually asher, which I, I wouldn't bring that up except to point out that that's actually where my son's name came from, Asher. So, so, so my, son, my son is literally named after Psalm 1, um, and, uh, and happy he is indeed. Um, I really like this definition for asher. Um, I got this from an Old Testament scholar. He wrote this. He wrote, Asher is supreme happiness, a joyful satisfaction rooted in relationship with God despite, despite what happens around us. In other words, the psalmist is setting out to describe what true happiness comes from. Where does it come from? True happiness is something that we all long for. It's something that we all long for. Every religion, every philosophy is focused on what it means to find true happiness and to find human flourishing. It's something that we all want. 
not something that's based on, uh, not, not something based on our context, but something that's bigger and higher than that. I, I was curious, so, so I did this yesterday. I, I, pulled up, I pulled up the Google web page, and I checked the search engine, and I wrote, I wrote in, how can I be? Because I was curious how Google would autofill the end of that question, how, how, what it would fill it with. How can I be? And, so, and then I did a search, and the first thing that came up was a song that I've never heard of. So I, I, don't, I don't recommend the song to you. I didn't try it out. I have no idea what the song is. But the second thing that came up was, how can I be happy? That was the second thing that came up on the list of suggestions for what Google thought I might be typing in. Apparently, Google is the place where people go to search for happiness, which is funny. But at the same time, it's incredibly sad, right? That, that that is what people genuinely do to search out happiness. And this is what we all want, to experience this kind of happiness, even, even when everything isn't good, even when life is hard. But how do we do that? Well, our passage this morning gives us a roadmap to finding the quest for happiness, to finding true blessing. It's interesting, the first stop that it gives us, the, the first point on our map, is the things that we should avoid. Continuing on, verse one. So, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. All right, so these are things that we are called to avoid. We're called to avoid the, the ways, the thinking, the actions of those who clearly don't know God, or at least live as though, they, as though they don't know God. They do what seems right to them, or maybe what seems fun, but they choose to reject the path of wisdom. Instead, this looks like being more influenced by friends, or movies, or TV, or music, or social media, or news outlets, or anything else except for God and God's word. And notice that there's a progression here. Our, our verse moves from, from just being influenced by the counsel of those who don't know God. And then, and then the next step is standing in the way or full-on identification with those who don't know God. And finally ends in actually joining in their mockery of God's way, in their scoffing. What we have here is a dangerous, seductive path. And I think sometimes we get lulled into this false sense of security where we feel like we can play on the fringe of it, where we can play on the edge without actually falling in. Well, I can go so far, but then I can draw the line and I won't continue further in. But there's a gravity to this path that continues to suck you down in deeper and deeper. But verse two gives us the alternative to that path. There's the path of the wicked, but there's the path of righteousness. There's the path of wisdom here. Verse 2 provides us with that, with that alternative. Beginning in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. So we have this contrast here between these two paths. The one path that prefers the wisdom and the counsel of others, and then this path that prefers delighting in God's law. What, is it, what does it mean by God's law here? God's law can mean a number of different things. In our passage, it's specifically referring to the whole of God's word, the whole of scripture, right? That's what it means by God's law here. 
So, so it's a, the blessed person is the one who finds delight, not first and foremost in the offerings, goals, and ways of this world, but rather in God's law. Notice it doesn't just say that they affirm Scripture. It doesn't say that they, they give two thumbs up about Scripture. It doesn't say that they even know lots of smart things about Scripture. What does it say? It says they delight. They delight in it. And why? Why would they delight in this? Why would they delight in this? Is it because it's such a beautiful book? I mean, it is really nicely bound. It's leather. I mean, that's, that's something special, right? Maybe it's a family heirloom. Maybe that, no, that's, that's not why they delight in it. They delight in it because it's God's speaking to them. It's God's very words to us. And God's children long to hear the voice of their father whispering to them. So when we pick it up and when we read, we are getting his very words to us. And look, look what this delight causes them to do as we continue on in verse two. How is this lived out? They meditate on it day and night. So day and night, so so bookends of the day, what it means is all day long, God's children delight to meditate upon his word. Well, what does it mean by meditate? I mean, certainly in pop culture, we hear the word meditate and we think something, we, we think more of the Eastern, more of the Eastern understanding of meditation where we come and we get really quiet and we try to clear our heads of everything. But that's not what God means when he says meditate. That's never what scripture means when it says meditate. Rather, meditating is filling our minds. So it's fun. The, the, the word, the actual, the word here almost means this kind of low guttural noise is what the word actually literally means. So that it gets used in Isaiah 31 verse 4 of a lion growling over the carcass it's about to eat. I'm pretty sure I made the exact same noise when I had steak last week. You know, they served it, and it's like, uh, like, like just guttural, grumbling noise of excitement. And that's, that, that's what it is. That's what it is when we, when we come to God's word. That's what we should be doing. That's exactly it. It's such an easy trap to fall into to think that we are called to just read Scripture and to just know lots of things about it where our time in the Bible is more like study, to get all the facts and to know all the things. And then, and then after we do that, we're surprised that we're not actually spiritually growing, even though we're treating Scripture in the same way the Pharisees did. There's so much more called of us than that. Meditation is more. Meditation is about taking the deep truths of God and pressing them down to the very depths of our heart. It's taking the truths about God and pressing them down into the depths of our heart. Similar to the, uh, to the experience in Luke 24 of the disciples on the way to Emmaus where they heard, they heard Christ himself proclaim God's word over them and their response was, did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn within us? That's meditating on God's word. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross He, in his efforts to unpack meditation, he highlighted four elements, four elements in particular that are incredibly useful for meditating on God's word. The first is memorization. Memorization, memorizing scripture so that you can continue to meditate, you can continue to ruminate on it even once 
you have closed this book so you can take it with you so that it can go with you throughout the day, both day and night. It also includes studying God's word. It includes studying God's word so that we can rightly understand it. We want to rightly understand what our God is saying to us. So studying it is an essential element. It includes praying scripture. Praying those passages back to God, right? If God's word is the maker of all things speaking to us, the one who created every single atom and continues to preserve it, and if he has these things to say to you, then meditation is not a time where we should be silent. It's a time where we should respond to God in prayer, responding to the things that he has said to us. He's talking to us, and he wants to hear back from you. And it should also include applying God's word to our lives. God's word should change us. It should change who we are. It should give shape to us. So what we have here is a balloon. So, so, much, so much potential in this balloon. So many things this balloon could be used for, but it's empty, if you can see in that hole. See, it's empty. Um, outside of some air, of course. It's empty. And so currently, it's useless. It has no shape. It's flaccid. It's not going to be good for anything. However, what happens when we take that balloon and we fill it with water? I, so some of you on the front row are looking nervous. But there's still another service, so I still need this. So you're safe for this service. But don't be here next service. Right? Well, what happens to it? It takes the shape of what filled it. The water that is now in this balloon has transformed it. It's given shape to it. It's given potential to it, right? Now this is a weapon. This is, all of you should fear me after the service. Right? That's what water does to it, and that's exactly what God's word does to us when we're filled with God's word. Um, commenting on this very topic, if you're familiar with um, Pilgrim's Progress, many of you probably are, um, I understand, I believe it's um, the most published English volume outside of scripture in, uh, in history, and one of the most widely read, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. No, I, I know we're in Minnesota, but it's not Paul Bunyan. Uh, written by John Bunyan. He actually wrote the majority of it while he was in prison for preaching God's word. Um, John Bunyan was a man who loved God's word. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a pastor who came a, a number of years, hundreds of years after him actually, in talking about Bunyan's preaching and Bunyan's works and such, um, Spurgeon had this to say about Bunyan. He said, why this man, why Bunyan, is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bibline. The very essence of Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. That's what we should be aiming for. We should be a people who, if we were pricked, we would bleed bibline. God's very word would come out of us because we are so full of it, because we are so, um, we are so shaped by it in every way. That's what we should be aiming for. The psalmist has laid out the path of blessing, meditation and delighting in God's word. But he doesn't leave it there. He goes on to provide an illustration of the results 
of meditating on God's word. He writes in verse three that he is like, that he is like a tree. He is like a tree. Now, in the arid Middle East where the psalm would have been written, they understood the necessity of planting a tree near ample water. Right? Without such water, the tree was destined to perish. It needed water to survive. But if that tree was planted by a stream of water, then it could not just survive, but it could actually thrive. Now, in our passage, these streams of water represents God's word, which nourish the soul which nourish the soul. Notice that the tree doesn't get up and leave the stream of water when it feels full. The, the tree doesn't, doesn't decide to come back to, to that stream of water later on when it's convenient. No, the, the tree is nourished by that stream of water day and night, constantly before the water. And what are the effects of this life-giving, watery word of God? Our passage notes two effects. The first one The first one is fruit, fruit. The first effect of this watery word of God is fruit. God uses his word to produce fruit in the believer. This tree is a fruit-bearing tree. But what is this fruit? Well, we could probably probably look to passages like Galatians 5, 22 to 23, which gives us the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Certainly, it would at least include those elements. Those are some of the fruits that are produced by God's Word at work in you. But it probably includes other things, maybe even, maybe even good works. We see, this, um, we see these things, two things connected, God's word and good works connected in passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All of scripture, I love this verse because it begins by telling you the nature of God's word and then it tells you the effect of God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17 gives us the purpose, the the end result, the effect of it, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So fruit probably includes at least those two elements. Not only that, though, but the produce, the effect of the water, is it also produces leaves. Not just any leaves, but leaves that will not wither. It sustains you. God's word, meditation on it, delight in it, sustains you in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trials, in tragedy, in angst. The word of God will continue to bear you up. There's so many saints who have gone before us that people have come to them and asked, how is it that you made it through such and such event? How is it that you were able to, to, to stand strong in the midst of it? And the reply so often is, I never stood, stood strong. I was never strong. God's word was strong. And God's word preserved me. God's word preserves us. It gives us the sustenance that we need so so that our leaves can continue on strong and unabated. The woes of this world won't weary this one because the leaf will not wither. It animates, it preserves, it sustains us. It is an evergreen fruit-bearing tree. So if your struggles or the things or the things of the world seem bleak, scripture aren't going to take those scripture won't take those things away. It's not that all of a sudden all of your hardships will be removed. That would be great. 
but rather it'll provide a strength that doesn't come from you, but only from the Lord's speaking to you. All of this is summarized in the following line of the passage. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, biblical prosperity doesn't mean power and and health and wealth. Rather, it means fruit and leaves. A life lived out in rich and rich in uh, fruit and leaves is what we genuinely want. It's what we it's what it's what will bring us true happiness and true delight in this life. If your goals ultimately are the world's sense of prosperity, where you want to have it all, you'll end up with nothing. The happy, flourishing life is about so much more. It's about a life lived out in vital intimacy with God and His Word. Hearing from our Father. That's the happy, flourishing life. Hearing the gentle voice of the King of the cosmos who loves his children dearly. This is what true prosperity is. But it's not any prosperity that our world will recognize or appreciate. In contrast, in the next verse, in verse 4, we see the negative side of the equation. So we've seen the path of the righteous, the path of wisdom, and now we see the path of the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked, who were described earlier as those who snub their nose at God's gracious revelation to us, are not the evergreen fruit trees of blessing. Rather, they're dehydrated, they're withered, they're desiccated, they're dried up, they're like chaff. In the ancient world, chaff was removed from grain by having the grain tossed into the breeze. And the breeze would come through and the breeze would separate the chaff and remove it. And uh, the chaff would be carried off and, and done away with. It wouldn't last very long because it was the opposite in every way from the path that leads to fruit and to leaves. Chaff is simply blown away. It's fragile. It breaks down. It lacks all vitality. I've been, um, I've been a coffee roaster for, for a number of years, a home coffee roaster. I've been doing it for about 20 years. And uh, it's a part of the coffee roasting process. Some of you might not know. Um, your coffee starts off green. It comes from a cherry. It starts off green. You have to actually roast it so before, uh, before you can drink it. Um, and so, so I've been a coffee roaster because I really like coffee and it's fresher and it's tastier than your coffee. Um, and so, uh, and so, so I've been a coffee roaster for years. And so, so during the roasting process, there's a chaff that actually breaks off. And so you have to separate the chaff from the amazingly good sweetness of the coffee. That's just amazing and overwhelming and beyond anything you can imagine. Um, you have to separate those two things and the chaff is useless. The chaff is useless. You throw it away or it ends up on my garage floor and my wife is angry with me. But either way, it's useless, right? It has to be thrown away. This is the result of the path of the wicked. This is where it leads. But the description of the blessed and the wicked doesn't end there. The passage goes on to describe the end of both, the ultimate destination of both of these things. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The statements are parallel to one another, describing the same ultimate reality. The wicked or the sinner will not be able to stand with the blessed on the last day. The blessed and the wicked have taken two different routes that lead to two very different ends. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
The word know here is is the word that's used for intimacy. So God has an intimate concern for his people and for their final destination. He delivers them to an eternity of relationship with him while the wicked are left for eternal condemnation. These are the two paths that are laid out for you. So then my question for you this morning is, which path are you genuinely on? Are you on the path of the righteous? Are you on the path of happiness? Are you on the path of flourishing? Are you on the path of blessing? Or are you on the path of the wicked? You see, it's interesting here because we're left with these two paths, but the psalmist doesn't give us a third path. There is no third path. There is no some middle road. There is no, ah, maybe a little over here. Two paths are what we're left with. The two paths are clearly laid out. And so, and so the question comes down to is, are you filled with a passion for God and for his word that drives you to study it and to memorize it and to meditate on it and to apply it day and night to your lives like a thirsty tree needing sustenance to get through every moment of every day. Does this describe you? Or are you on the other path? I think when we're all honest, we have to convince confess that this path maybe doesn't describe me so well. I do have my daily devotions. I, I, I do appreciate God's word. But I don't think this path honestly describes my life all that well. So what do we do with that? It's interesting because as I meditate on this path, as I meditate on what it means to follow God in this way, there is only one that I can think of who does clearly walk this path and walks this path for us. There is only one who has perfectly meditated on God's word day and night. There is only one who perfectly bore fruit and whose leaves were preserved regardless of the situation. There is only one who delighted in the law of God in the way described here. And when he was tested, he did truly bleed bibline. There is only one who enjoyed the happy flourishing that I think this passage leads to. And that one is Christ. Christ is the one who is described in this passage. He is the man who is blessed. He is the one who is happy. So you see, you and I, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't live this life. We haven't lived this life. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came because he lived this life for us. He died the death that we deserved. He took the condemnation that the road of the wicked led to. He took the end on our behalf because he loved us that much. So that in the end, we get the blessing that he earned. He he said it himself this way in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't take this path alone. There is only one way that we can get to the Father. There is only one way we can enjoy flourishing. There's only one way we can enjoy true happiness. And that is through the path laid out by Christ. He is the only way. 
So that as we come to this, we should feel some sense of condemnation. We should feel overwhelmed by this passage because it doesn't describe me, it describes him. And because he's that glorious, that as we sit and as we meditate on this, this path, this path that's described in this passage describes all the more clearly the beauty of our Savior and everything that he has accomplished for us. So that the life that we now live is truly his life, first and foremost. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Some of you this morning, some of you this morning are here and you're, you're, you're hurting and you're longing and you're feeling the burden of your sin. You're feeling the burden of condemnation. You failed, you haven't lived up, you're hopelessly underwater and you don't see any way forward. And you don't feel any sense of reprieve as you look at this passage. You want the blessed life. You want true happiness, but you don't know where to turn to. There is only one solution. There is only one path, and it's through Christ. He's taken the burden for you so that we might try to find true happiness in him. If you're one of those people, we'll have people up here after the service waiting to pray with you. Please don't hesitate to come pray. For those who have trusted in Christ, for those who have trusted in the one foundation, the one solution to this problem that we're left in, for all of you, he wants you to, he wants your hearts to be opened to more delight and more joy. We are called to imitate the Lord. We are called to walk in his path. He lived it perfectly, not so that we could stumble and fall and then wallow in the mud of inability. Rather, he's done this so that he could give us the spirit, so that we could walk in power as we attempt to follow in his footsteps. Just as my kids attempted to follow in my footsteps up the hill for sledding, did they do so perfectly? No, they still fell on their faces, and it was still funny. Uh, They didn't do it perfectly, and you won't either, but we continue in the power of the Spirit to move forward, to live the life, to live out the example that he has given us, to find the joy and the delight in meditating upon God's word, in listening to his voice. We want to be a people who bleed bibline. Four things I want to emphasize. I've already brought them up, but I want to spend, a, I want to spend another couple minutes talking about them. Where do we move from here? How do we meditate? Number one, again, memorization. Memorization. Memorization is not just for Awana children. Um, It is for Awana children. That's an amazing thing. But it's not just for them. It's for us adults as well. Memorize God's word. Some of you that might be completely foreign, start off with just memorizing some verses. Maybe even just a clause here. Maybe even a prepositional phrase. Memorize something. Be attempting to memorize God's word. Some of you, I mean, I've been in this church long enough to know that we have many memorization warriors in this church. I've been so encouraged by the number of you that I've heard from as, as I've seen you quote God's word, as I've seen you living out God's word. I've been so encouraged over and over. For some of you, maybe it would be, maybe it would be doing something else with your memorization. Maybe instead of memorizing a verse, 
Maybe it's time to memorize a chapter of God's word. Maybe it's time to memorize a book of God's word. There's no point in time where you reach the end and you're like, I have arrived. I have no more need to memorize. Even if you memorize all of God's word, I guarantee you're not gonna remember it all. So go back and continue memorizing. Go back and continue going over it. Now, as a side note, I, I have a horrible memory. I have a horrible memory, so I am constantly defeated by memorization. That's okay. That's just you slipping going up the hill. So you get back up and you continue to trudge up that hill. Don't worry if you forget Bible passages, that's okay. There's not gonna be any great test when you get to heaven, okay? Recite all the Bible verses you memorize now. Um, I wouldn't be in a good position if that, if that happened. It's not about being able to impress someone at the end of your life. It's about meditating on God's word in the moment. Memorize God's word. Second point, study God's word. We need to understand what it is we're reading. So many verses, so many things get ripped out of their context. Pay attention to the context of the passages that you're reading. Wrestle with them. Attempt to understand them. Are you going to understand everything perfectly? No, probably not. Are you going to understand the majority? Yeah, probably so. Work on studying God's word. We, we, we have a library that's incredibly well-maintained with resources like commentaries that you can open up, that you can flip to, that can help you answer questions about God's word as you're studying it. There's lots of opportunities there. We have pastors who love to talk to people about God's word. Um, we love it when you bring us questions. That's so much fun to be able to wrestle together with God's word. So many times, you guys, yeah, it's not because we're encyclopedias, mind you, but it's because, it's because when you bring us questions, we're like, ah, that's a really good question. I need to spend more time thinking about that. And then we can wrestle together. And that is a beautiful thing to wrestle together over God's word as God's people. Study his word. Pray his word. I'm amazed at how foreign this feels to most of us, but I know that it is. So often we read a passage of scripture and then we go and we have our prayer time and we think, what do I wanna pray for? Well, my car's making a weird noise. I want that fixed. I'm gonna pray for that. And I'm gonna pray for, oh, my, my neighbor. My neighbor is having this issue. And, and then we, we come up with this random assortment. All good things, all good things to pray for. But it would be very similar to me having a conversation with my wife where my wife is telling me about her hopes and her dreams and her goals and the things that she longs for. And then I, in a very meaningful moment, respond and say, the car's making a weird noise. And then I would rightfully be in so much trouble, right? But that's how we treat God. If God is speaking to you, you should respond to him. You should respond to the things that he is saying to you. As you read his word, as you see it, to use it as an opportunity to praise God for who he is and for what he reveals about himself in the passage. Use it as an opportunity to confess where you're falling short and where you're weak. Use it as an opportunity to pray that you would be strengthened in these areas that God's word is clearly calling us to. Pray God's word and finally apply it. Apply it. This isn't just an academic study. This is a time to have our lives transformed. We don't want to stay this. We want to be this, right? Apply it to your lives. Be transformed by God's word. Press it down into your heart until your heart burns. We are called to follow Christ's path, the path of enjoying God, 
Christ has made a way for us. Access to God enjoyed in his word as we meditate on it and as we drink it in like thirsty trees so that we are not left as children trying to climb up that hilly snow on our own. We have a path, a level path that's been prepared for us by our Savior so that we can go to him and enjoy God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your desires for us, God, to be a people who listen to you, who are transformed by you, who would delight in you. Father, what a wonderful thing that you care so much about us, not because we have anything to offer, God, but because you are just that amazing. Father, I pray that as we continue to meditate upon someone, God, that your spirit would guide us to apply the psalm to our lives, that we would be a people who bleed bibline. Father, you are good. We pray all this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes out of Jude. Would you please stand? Verses 24 to 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a good day. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.